Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Beginning in verse 1. Matthew 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's rare when we gather together to worship and we sing praises and hymns that, Father, we get an overwhelming sense of thy presence. And yet this morning my heart greatly rejoiced in singing these psalms and hymns. Lord, sometimes we forget when we sing these psalms and hymns, we're not singing them to one another, but we're singing them to you. And we pray that, Lord, they truly were pleasing in thy sight. For, Lord, they truly drew our hearts to desire Christ even more than ever. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far, thy face to see, and in thy bosom rest. Father, we so long and yearn for that day when we shall be forever with Christ, that we might see his glory that you gave him from the foundations of the world. My Father, I pray this morning that you would help us Lord, to understand this passage of Scripture. And Lord, may we ever be watchful and ready for the coming of Yourself and the end of the world. May we be reminded this morning that, Lord, we are truly pilgrims and strangers in this world. We're just passing through. If we could live each day with this thought of Your coming again and the end of the world, how different would our lives be? How different would we approach the trials and afflictions and troubles of this present life, counting them but dung and but for a moment. Lord, how we would always be setting our hearts on that those things of eternity and not so set on the things of this world. Father, guide us this morning, we pray. Open up our hearts, draw us closer to Thee, for we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples, verse 3, came unto him privately, privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? You know, as I pondered this passage of Scripture the last few days, especially early this morning, I thought to myself, how long has the church of God in general been sinfully silent when it comes to proclaiming the coming of the Lord and the end of the world? Where once this glorious proclamation was the driving inspiration 
behind every sermon preached, now in many churches and in many places, it is one seldom heard or even spoken of amongst God's people. The lack of watchfulness and readiness for His coming and the end of the world, which our Lord Himself exhorts every believer unto throughout these next two chapters, is the greatest evidence of this sad truth. If we truly believed, I mean truly believed and lived in the light of His coming again and the end of this world, what watchfulness, what readiness it would produce in our hearts and our lives, what carefulness of not loving the world more than it should be would it create in us if we truly, truly, every day considered the coming of our Lord and the end of this present world. And yet to see and hear many Christians today, we find them content and almost settled into the things of the world. Do we truly anticipate the coming of our Lord? And do we truly know that this world is coming to an end? How it would enhance our hearts and our love and our adoration for Christ. That we would live as such pilgrims and strangers in the world. The world would notice the change. For though Christ even warns them by the example of Noah's days before the flood came, how they ate, drank, and married until the day the flood came and took them away in this same chapter of verses 36 and 41. Or how the good man, he says in verses 42 to 44, how the good man of the house did not watch, so he suffered his house to be broken up. Or the evil servant in verses 45 to 51, who said in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, therefore he smote his fellow servants and ate and drunk with the drunken. Or how all ten virgins in chapter 25 were found sleeping at the coming of the bridegroom, wherein five were foolish and locked out. Or even a lazy servant who hides his one talent and therefore declared the unprofitable servant and cast into utter darkness. In spite of all these things, the signs of his coming unfolding before our very eyes in Matthew 24, 1-35 and the divine exhortations to watchfulness and readiness. Many today continue to remain complacent and indifferent to Christ's coming and the end of the world. It's amazing when you consider all these divine facts of which our Lord speaks in verse or chapter 24 and 25. He gives us multitude examples of people not being ready and not watching. And throughout the entire discourse, only a few verses shorter than the Sermon on the Mount, 24 and 25 of Matthew, our Lord continues to say, Watch and be ready, for you know not the hour when your Lord cometh. And yet it proves the slothfulness and sluggishness of our hearts, even as God's children, that we forget these exhortations. Watch therefore, he said in chapter 24, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you know not what your 
what hour, what hour your Lord doth come. Watch, therefore. In verse 44, he says, Therefore, by ye also, be ye also ready, for at such an hour as ye think not, as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. You know not what hour your Lord cometh, and you know not in what hour the Son of Man cometh. Paul said in Romans 13, And that knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. I saved some 40 years ago. My salvation is nearer than when I believed. Paul told the church at Thessalonica, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Throughout these two chapters and throughout Scripture, we're exhorted to be watchful and ready, for we know not the hour when our Lord shall come, and that He will come in an hour as we think not. It is going to be a quick, swift event. We should always be watchful and ready, anticipating. With every prayer we make when we rise in the morning to begin the day, we should be praying, God, may this be the day that the Son of God returneth and receive me unto Himself, that there where He is I may be also. And at the end of the day, we should say, Lord, I pray that tomorrow may be the day that You come again. That we would be in such great anticipation for His return. In the end of the world. Yet before we can look further into our text, there are a few divine truths leading up to our Lord's exhortations which deserve our immediate attention. Maybe something that we might overlook, but we need not overlook. First of all, I want you to notice something that many people overlook. I want you to notice how the Lord would sovereignly and providentially prepare His disciples to inquire about His coming again and the end of the world. He prepares His disciples to inquire. For Proverbs 16.1 says, For the preparation of the heart of men and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. It was not the disciples who suddenly stroke up this inquiry. It was the Lord who prepared them. <laughs> Verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Some say that Christ never returned to the temple after this, that he had departed from the temple forever. But as Christ was departing the temple, his disciples would seek to draw his attention to the beauty and majesty of the temple of which man built. And I believe this is greatly important for us to understand as our Lord prepares to exhort them on the signs of His coming in the end of the world. Almost as though to impress Him, 
The Lord's leading the temple and the disciples look back and see all the majesty and beauty of this man-made temple. And it's almost like they want to impress him with their religious observance. That the outward beauty and majesty of the temple was sure evidence of their piety and devotion and godliness. Look at our temple, Lord. Look how beautiful it is. Is it not lovely and wonderful when you consider they're speaking to the Son of God Himself? I believe there's a lesson here to be learned for us today that applies even today more so than then. Because man has always prided himself in his own vain achievements, especially, especially those in regard to his religious profession and opinions. Look at how pious I am, Lord. Look how much I know of God. Look how good and religious I am. That the outward show of piety and religion is to be highly esteemed and regarded by man and God. Look at the temple, Lord. Look how beautiful it is. Look how godly we are. Yet our Lord would say in Matthew 23, and did say, Yet such were merely whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are full of, within of dead men's bones and of all uncleanliness. Man has always prided himself in his vain achievements, especially in regards to religion. I believe this has much to do with what Christ is fixing to say and a very great important lesson for us today. Let us pride not ourselves in what we know or who we think we are or our achievements because the temple was nothing without Christ and so are we. We're nothing without God and yet man speaks as though he obtained that knowledge of God on his own. That his knowledge and his profession demands regard and esteem from both God and man. Look how much I've attained. Look how much I've learned. Look how much knowledge I've possessed. For though men today may not boast of a temple made of brick and mortar, yet they would esteem themselves and their own vain knowledge of God as a thing of excellence and worthy of both God and man's attention. Watch and be ready extends also unto our own hearts. Lord, look at the temple, how beautiful it is. <laughs> Paul himself said in Romans 12, For I say, through the grace given unto me, listen to these words, please. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt, God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Romans 12.3 Paul says that through the grace given unto him. Yet, beloved, I'm sure in time past we had Always men who were prideful of their knowledge of God and religion. Yet from the reading of history and knowing this present age, I fear we live in a day and age where man is abundantly prideful and arrogant in his knowledge about God. 
that those who profess to know so much of God's sovereign grace and yet be filled with pride and arrogance towards others is to me an oxymoron. Oh, I'm telling you, I know about God's sovereign grace, and yet they're filled with arrogance and pride towards others. That's an oxymoron. How could you say you know a lot about God's grace, and yet you're arrogant and prideful? It's an oxymoron. You can't have grace and arrogance and pride in the same sentence, let alone in the same heart, and yet that is what man is today. Look at man today. He boasts himself of his religious profession and his achievements. as though it, re- it needs regarding from God and man. To me, that proves that someone is merely ignorant of God's grace. To be arrogant of it and boastful of it. I came to show him the buildings of the temple. Look at the beauty and majesty of them. Look how much we've achieved, how much we've obtained. Even the church at Laodicea thought they were rich and had needed nothing. The Lord said, you're poor and you're naked and you're miserable. God is not impressed by anything we profess to know about him. If we have, some, if we have knowledge of God, it's because God has dealt it to it according to his grace and mercy. By the measure of faith, we can't even boast about our knowledge of God. It's a gift of God. Even our faith is a gift of God. Our repentance is a gift of God. Our salvation is a gift of God. Everything we have is a gift of God. How can we dare boast of anything? It's all of God. And we live in a prideful, arrogant generation of professing believers who tend to fight and quarrel with one another about who knows more about God than the other. It's an oxymoron. They're not fighting over brick and mortar, but they're fighting over themselves and what they've achieved and what they've accomplished in knowledge of God. Yet verse 2, And Jesus said to them, See ye not all these things? Do you not see these things as they are? Take a look at this brick and mortar. That's all it is. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. It's going to be destroyed. What man achieves in this world, even with religion, in regards to religion, it's going to be cast down. It's nothing in the eyes of God. It's nothing. You remember later on when the Lord talks about those who come before him and says, but Lord, Lord, we've done many great works in your name. We've done this, we've done that, and we've done this and all in your name. The Lord says, I don't know who you are. Cursed are you. I have no idea who you are. Man prides himself in his religious achievements, believing that this should bring regard from God and man. If God has blessed us by his grace, to know something of Christ and open His Word up to our hearts and understandings. May we be humbled by that and have the same spirit as that of Paul who says, I tell you by the grace of God that is in me, in meekness instructing those who oppose themselves that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, I'm not saying that one cannot and must not be bold for the truths of God, but let us be bold in Christ and not in ourselves and our own achievements. And let us ever be reminded that every good gift cometh from above. 
and who God has blessed us, blessed you with knowledge of God and Scripture, then bow down and give him the praise and honor and glory for everything. For in his light we see light. Jesus said of them, You see not all these things. Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. These words of Christ must have greatly astonished his disciples. For you got to remember, the temple had always been a place of high esteem and honor by the Jews. The temple was the place. You remember when they went back and tried to rebuild the temple? You remember the Lord even mentioned Solomon Temple and all its glory? The temple for the Jew was a place of high esteem and honor. It was the place to where they met with God. It was highly reverenced. And Christ said, I'm going to bring it down to the ground. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They're going, what? You're going to bring the temple down to the ground? For thousands of years, that's been the place of honor and worship and esteem. You've got to go to the temple. That's where God is. And Christ said, I'm going to destroy this. Can you imagine how astounded they were? Yet these words would set his disciples' hearts and minds to inquire on a subject of greatest importance. Namely, his coming again and the end of the world. Which leads us to their inquiring of the Lord. Verse 3. After he said that, listen to this. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the Lord says that and goes to the Mount of Olives and quietly sits. He stirred their hearts up sovereignly and providentially to inquire. Have you ever been there? Have you ever read something in the Word of God and it just bewildered you? Of course you did. All the time. And as you're pondering what you've read, you go to the Lord in prayer like the disciples do privately, and you ask the Lord, Lord, what is the meaning of this? Isn't it amazing how God stirs our hearts up to inquire at His feet the divine truths of God? It's such a blessing as a Christian. When God, the Holy Spirit, begins to do that in our hearts, bringing to remembrance the things that Christ has taught us, and we go to the feet of Christ like the disciples, and we privately say, Lord, what is the meaning of this? Or has it been too long since you have known something of that experience? When the Word of God begins to burn within your heart, like Jeremiah said, like fire. <sighs> Oh, may God help us that we might, like the disciples, be stirred in our hearts by the grace of God to inquire at the feet of Christ things that we know not of. Tell us, Lord. Tell us. It's amazing. When I read that, I'm going, that's amazing. Tell us. And singing the hymns a few minutes ago, talking about more love to Christ and desiring Christ, nothing but Christ. It draws us to His feet like it did Mary, who sat at her feet. Yet many Christians like Martha are running around serving diligently and forsaking those more important matters. Oh, maybe you learn to sit at the feet of Christ privately and inquire of Him about his word, 
Why do I say that? Because I, I believe we live in a day and age where we have so much knowledge at our fingertips. You can order a book on anything. i got a library full of books, and they're good to read, and I, I do enjoy reading them. I don't read them as much now as I did earlier, but I, I enjoy reading them, and that's good to know. But how often do we come across a passage of Scripture, and instead of running to Manton or Thomas or Owens or Pinks, we run to Christ and sit at his feast and say, tell us, Lord, what does this mean? What is the meaning of this passage of Scripture? Tell me what it means. Oh, oh, beloved, we should long and desire for such times as that. His disciples came unto him privately. Mark would declare that there were only four disciples who privately came to inquire. We surely know the first three, Peter, James, and John. They were kind of like the inner circle with Christ. When he took the Mount Transfiguration in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took these three to him apart to pray. Peter, James, and John was part of the four, the fourth being Andrew. So not all the disciples evidently came to him private, only four. We know not if they were chosen out of the twelve. Were they intimidated by what he said or afraid and they chose four to go, knowing James, Peter, and John were the inner circle? Maybe that's why they chose those three. And Andrew is maybe just a fourth. We know not whether they were chosen of the twelve or if it were only these four who took greater interest in the words of Christ concerning the destruction of the temple. Maybe the other eight didn't have such a great interest of what Christ was saying. Maybe only these four did, and they got together and said, let us go ask Christ. We know not, Scripture's silent. Was it out of fear that someone might hear them inquiring is why they went privately? Or because they were uncertain how Christ would respond? We know not either, but only four, and privately. Yet I believe the answer lies clearly in their question. It wasn't intimidation or fear. I believe it was the Holy Spirit of God drawing them to inquire. Again, I want to come back to this because I believe it's vitally important when we're studying God's Word. I'm telling you, beloved, there's nothing nothing like when the Holy Spirit of God draws our hearts to draw near to Christ to inquire of Him. And I fear few Christians understand exactly what that means. The Holy Spirit of God stirred in their hearts to inquire of Christ. <clears throat> May we pray for such a leading. But I believe it was simply because they were stirred by the Holy Spirit. And I believe only these four took a greater interest in the words of Christ concerning the future <clears throat> destruction of the temple, which stirred their interest and curiosity in the greater matters of his coming and the end of the world. He spoke about the destruction of the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. Not his coming and the end of the world, but the mentioning of the destruction of the temple led them to inquire about his coming and the end of the world. Isn't that amazing? How God begins to show you one thing, and out of that one thing, it begins to evolve into something greater. It's amazing how God does. You have done, and I know we have. I know we have. I know 
with all my heart. I know that many of you here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. When one verse of Scripture God lays upon your heart and that Scripture begins to take <laughs> take a growth and begins to grow and you're going, yes, look at that, look at this, look at that, and it expands into something bigger and greater. That's God's Word. Let me use my grandson this morning for an example. Yesterday I was talking to him about the Word of God and preaching it and studying. I told him I need to study. And he said, why? He said, after all these years, sometime you come to the end of the book, right? I mean, you've read the book enough. You're at the end of it. He said, isn't, isn't that all? You're at the end of the book. I said, oh, I said, the Word of God is different from that one verse you can preach on for a year. And it was amazing. I was glad to be able to speak that with him. But that's exactly what many Christians think. Well, I've come to the end of the book. I've read all 66 books. And okay, well, uh, no, that's not the end of it. This, this is God's Word. <laughs> How many times have God taken you back to a portion of Scripture that you thought you knew years ago? And you look at it and you go, how did I miss that? i never seen that before. Man, this is a blessed book. <laughs> it's so dear to us as Christians. That's why I weary not in reminding you over and over again. Please sit at the feet of Christ and ponder, inquire. Let Him, by His Holy Spirit, teach you. Oh, that is the blessing of studying and praying and meditating over the Word of God. This is the fruit of Psalm 1. Amen? Mm -hmm. Meditate therein day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by their waters. Amen? Thank God for His blessed Word. But I believe they were led by the Holy Spirit, stirred in their heart by the Holy Spirit to inquire of the Lord. Yet I believe the disciples could never have anticipated Christ's response. I mean, 24 and 25. They came to him. It was the t destruction of the temple that stirred in their hearts to say, okay, we'll take it further. How, when is your coming in the end of the world? I don't think the disciples could ever have anticipated our Lord's response. Nor the heart-searching signs which were to precede his coming in the end of the world. I believe these next chapters, to use our current language, blew their minds. Because they still believed he was there to bring the kingdom in. They still believed he was going to set Jerusalem up now, and the world would be over. Let me tell you something. Even though they knew when Christ would come, they were still ignorant of it. Right? You remember the birth of Christ and when Herod asked and the Jews says, oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, this and that and that. And all. They knew that and yet they did not. I believe the coming of Christ is going to be the same way to us as it was to the disciples. We think we know. I think this is what the Lord, I believe this is what the Lord meant when he says, you know not the hour. He's going to come when you think not he's going to come. And even though we've got all these things, just like the Jews had with the birth of Christ, even though we got the, the finished Word of God, 66 books, even though we got all this, I still believe we're going to be ignorant and astounded when He comes. For He says, even though the signs of His coming would be unmistakable and obvious, and He tells the signs, 
many shall come in my name. Those shall hear wars, rumors of wars, not troubled. Nation rise against nation. He gives all these signs. He said, these are signs. And you know what? These signs have been going on for years, thousands of years. You know that, don't you? Each generation of Christians said, oh, this is, this is the year. This is the generation. I mean, the signs are here. And even though the signs of his coming would be unmistakable and obvious, yet the hour of his coming, Christ said, would remain unknown. I'll give you the signs, but you're still not going to know. And oh, have we been reading the signs over the last 2,000 years. <clears throat> I bet those Christians, when Nero was throwing him into the line, after Christ's ascension, I believe those Christians says he's got to be coming now. He's going to come right now before that lion takes my head off. Before he throws in the lines, then Christ's going to be coming. You read Thessalonica, Paul, the book of Thessalonians, Paul speaks as though he's coming in time. They believed every day, the Lord's coming today, he's got to come today. I mean, look at the Roman Empire, look what's happening. And it would take too much time to go through the history after that of all the wars and all the troubles we've had in the world. I'm telling you, we've been following these signs for generations. Lord says, it doesn't matter if, I, if you know the signs, you're still not going to know the hour. but live as though it would be every day or any day. Because <coughs> he says the hour. He said the day or the week or the month. He said he'll come in an hour as you think not. It's going to be quick. It's going to make people's heads spin. We're going to be astonished and amazed. Let me just add this word here. If you're here without Christ, you know every single minute you live without Christ, He could come. If He comes, you're locked out. Do you know that? If the Lord comes back, like the ten virgins or the five foolish virgins, you're locked out. There's nothing There's nothing that can help you. It's locked. If the Lord comes back and He can come back, and it's been 2,000 years since He said this, which means His coming is even more imminent. If the Lord comes back and you're without Christ, you're locked out. And listen to me when I say this, because I say this very... Humbly and earnestly, he won't care for your crying. You can cry and weep and moan all you want to. You despise his goodness, God will not hear your cries. As the waters grew in the days of Noah and the cries of the damned grew, God didn't pay heed to any of their cries. He let them perish. If he comes and locks you out, and he can come at any moment, any time, any second, any hour, if he comes and you're left without Christ, my friend, you're going to regret it, and God is not going to care. It'll be too late. People think, oh, I got till tomorrow. Oh, let me think about it. Oh, I might think about being saved next week. I don't know if I'm saved or not. Let me just give me some time. You don't have time. Nobody gave you any time. Nobody said you had time. I'm telling you, if the good man would have watched, amen, if the five virgins, foolish virgins would have kept their lamps lit, oil in their lamps, I'm telling you, it's going to become so surprising. The day is going to come so surprising, so swift, that it's going to spin the heads of countless of people, even the Christians in a good way, but those that are without Christ, they're going to be horrified. Because you know what? They're going to know he came. Do you know that? You think the people in Noah's day didn't know? When the floods 
waters were rising above, around them? Did they not know? Did they not beat on the ark? Did they not go to the ark and say, Mo, uh, Noah, we, we believe you now, and all these years you've been preaching, I now believe in beating on the door of the ark? Why do you think God had to close the door? Do you ever consider that? Maybe because Noah might have tried to open it up again, not saying Noah is more merciful than God. I'm just saying Noah would be more foolish than God. He's coming. He's coming. And again, I get ahead of myself, but you know, beloved, this is the thunder which carries the gospel into the world. Do you know that? This is, this is the thunder which carries the gospel. And you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you need to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, and, and you need to be saved. You're wretched without Christ, without God. You need help. You're, you're a sinner, undone, your transgressions, all that. The thunder to that is because God is coming again. To judge the world in righteousness. And though I preach you now of mercy and grace, there's coming a day when God shall judge the world by that man of His choosing. It is the thunder of the gospel. We watered the gospel down and made it merely an invitation without a command of repentance and coming judgment. Yes, God is now offering mercy and grace. Yet at the end of that message is, if you deny and despise such mercy and grace, you have nothing to await but the judgment of God. And it is a severe judgment upon sinners for eternity. It's the thunder of the gospel. And the churches throughout the generations have left that thunder off. It's like the old Indian who heard a, liberal preacher preaching and afterwards someone asked him what he thought about the sermon. He said a lot of rain but no thunder. And that depicts many sermons today. A lot of rain and no thunder. Even with these signs, our Lord says they must be ever watchful and ready. For in such an hour as you think not. Those, should, those words should be driven into our hearts. In such an hour you think not. The Son of Man cometh. Like I said, beloved, centuries have come and gone since Christ first spoke these words. And many of these signs have appeared to many to have come and gone. And yet the hour of His coming and the end of the world yet lingereth. The good man of the house is not watching. The evil servant is eating and drinking with the drunken. The virgins are all fast asleep. The unprofitable servant has hidden his one talent. Few are watching, not knowing when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at cock crowing or in the morning, for coming suddenly he will find many sleeping. And what I say unto you, Christ said, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Watch. Like I said in the beginning prayer, if you and I thought more diligently and faithfully on the coming of the Lord and the end of the world on a daily basis, how would that change our lifestyle? When we meet afflictions and trials or troubles or complications in life, well, the Lord's coming. The end of the world is soon. 
How would it change our perspective on those things? I'm not saying it would take all the worry and care away. And again, like a brother prayed, we're supposed to do, give due diligence in providing for our family and doing the right things. Yet, how would it change our perspective of life if we daily considered at any hour, at any hour, the Lord can come? And the world is coming to an end. Isn't that amazing that the, the disciples asked that question? When shall be the end of the world? You know what? If you ask, Most people you talk to today, if you ask them, I'm not going to say all of them because in this day and age, who knows with all these weirdos and atheists and everything else running around. But the average, most people would, would admit they believe there's an end to this world. Whether it be by man's own cause or God, they believe this world's going to end. It's going to end. This world's going to end. Most people do. This world's going to end. What perspective would that put on things of life if we considered that daily? The world's going to end. Now, I'm not saying we'd be fanatic about it and say, well, the world's going to end and we're going to run off and be monks in the hill forever and just wait for God to come back. It's not so about. But just the idea, just the belief, just the known fact, the world is going to end and the Lord's coming back. Wouldn't that put a different perspective on our daily lives? Do we have to grow older? And I'm confessing my own fault. Do we have to grow older before we understand the priorities of life? Do we have to grow older to look back over life to say, you know, a lot of things I did made no sense. Now I see the priorities of life. Do we have to wait till we get closer to death before we realize that if the world don't end, I'm still going to? Tell us. Tell us, they ask. When shall these things be? <laughs> Man's curiosity and the things high and lofty have never vanished. Tell us when things... And he does. But he said, even though I tell you all this, all the signs and all the warnings and exhortations, you can read them all you want to. You're still not going to know the hour that he comes. And he's going to come when you think he's not coming. So therefore, he says, watch and be ready. Amen? Next week, we're going to dwell a little bit more in this passage. I'm not going to say we're going to go through all the entire two chapters, but... Um, like I promised in the first verses of this, but I really felt that these beginning verses were vitally important for us to understand before our Lord gets into this. And says, okay, I'll tell you. And it's amazing. And this is this is what we want to begin with next week. It is amazing when they say, what shall be the sign of thy coming in the world? Jesus answered and said to them, this has always amazed me. Take heed that no man deceive you. That tops the list. Not wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, pestilence, famines, not all that. What tops the list is Christ said, there's going to be such a measure of deceitfulness that it's going to deceive many people. And I believe this generation is ignorant of this exhortation. Christ put this at the top of the list because it's going to be very, very great, this level of deceitfulness. Preacher, how can we be assured that we're not being deceived? Stay in the book. Everybody says that, but not everybody does that. Stay in the book. 
because more and more people are getting away from this. Amen? May God give us grace to hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. And may we, as the disciples, be often inquiring at the foot of Christ. And also, let us watch and be ready. If you're here without Christ, every second you're without Christ means a second closer to His coming and you being forever lost. You don't have till tomorrow. I wish people would understand that. I wish a lot of the gospel preachers would emphasize this in preaching. You don't, you don't have tomorrow. You don't have 10 minutes from now. You don't have an hour from now. You said, well, preacher, we shouldn't scare people into salvation. I don't care what you call it. It's the truth. You don't have till this afternoon or tomorrow. Keep waiting and thinking you have time. But foolishly, one day you might be surprised and realize you waited too long. And the bridegroom has come. And the door is locked. And you're left outside. Let that not happen. You're here now. You hear the message now. The bridegroom calleth now. Today is the day of salvation. Now. Linger not, lest it be too late. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we're greatly humbled and yet greatly inspired by Thy words. Lord, truly we have not spent as much time as we should have in contemplating on your coming again and the end of the world. May we learn from this this morning. Lord, may it change our lives. May it change our hearts. I pray most of all that those this morning that are here without Christ, they know it. Nobody has to tell them. Their conscience, even now at this very moment, is bearing witness to them that they're without Christ. I pray that you'd fill their hearts with fear. I pray that, Lord, you'd help them and understand, help them to understand their need of Christ before it's too late. May they not leave here thinking they've got tomorrow. May they, Lord God, leave here fearing that they don't have another second. But they must turn to Christ. Lord, may you be honored and glorified in all of this. May we, Father, ever look to you, and may we ever watch and be ready. For we know not the hour that the Son of Man shall come. We know that he will come on an hour that we think not. Help us to always be watching and praying and ready. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.